Thank you, David, and good morning, everyone. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, as today we're taking a break from our series in titles, in, titled, in, uh, in Titus, entitled Healthy Church. Today we go to the book of Acts, because today is International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And I'd like to read with you um, Acts 6, beginning in verse 7, all the way through 15. And then we'll read a couple verses at the end of chapter 7. So let's begin in Acts 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then we'll jump down to chapter 7, verse 54. 7:54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. I'm sure most of us are familiar with examples from church history of men and women who died for their faith in Jesus Christ. One of them was John Huss, who lived about 600 years ago, a Roman Catholic priest, who at one point realized that the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church was not in agreement with the Bible. So he started to preach what the Bible actually, pre what the Bible actually teaches, emphasizing the authority of the Bible and that Jesus Christ and not the Pope was the head of the church. He was arrested, he was falsely accused, a mock trial took place, he was convicted of heresy and sentenced to be burned at the stake unless he recanted. He stood firm and it is said that his dying words were, Lord Jesus, I endure this cruel death for you. I ask you have mercy on your enemies. Now it's tempting to think that those examples are extreme and that these are examples merely of the past. Do they still kill Christians today? And the answer is yes. Last year, 4,761 
Christians were killed because they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine this sanctuary filled to capacity, multiplied by 15. Each of those who will be in attendance would lose their lives because they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This very day, Christians are still being persecuted. They're discriminated against. They're maligned. The property is destroyed. They are detained without trial. Women are raped. And yes, believers are still killed for believing in Christ in countries like North Korea, Afghanistan, Nigeria, in Pakistan and many other countries around the world. So today is International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And today we want to set aside time to not only consider the reality of, of persecution and pray for our brothers and sisters, but also learn about Christian persecution and what the Bible teaches us about that. We do that because, as Dave quoted this morning, Hebrews 13, 3 commands us to remember those who are in prison as if we are in prison with them. They are our brothers and our sisters in Christ. They are our spiritual family. But also because the persecuted church and persecuted Christians are a great example to us of what it means to be truly and completely devoted to Jesus Christ. And I suggest to you this morning, what I suggest to you this morning is that we need that example because the volume of opposition against Christians in the Western world is being turned up. So first I want to think with you, what are some reasons why persecution takes place? And then we're going to look at Stephen's martyrdom and consider the reality of persecution and the results of persecution, both the bad ones and the good ones. And I hope that at the end of this service, you have a renewed, renewed burden for persecuted Christians and a desire to pray for them, but also that all of us will grow in courage to boldly take a stand for Jesus Christ, no matter the cost. So let's first think about what are some reasons that persecution takes place. Well, it is without question that politics plays an important role. Rulers see Christianity as a threat to their power, and so they will not tolerate any other faith than the majority faith, especially in strongly Muslim and Hindu countries. All of that is true. All of that is what is happening around the world. However, the Bible digs deeper. So let me give you at least three reasons, and I'm sure there are more, but at least three reasons why persecution of Christian takes place. So here's the first one. Excuse me. Jesus predicted that it would happen. In John 15, 19, Jesus said, the world will hate you. Why? Because they hated me. When today you stand up boldly for the truth, which is there's only one way to God, and that is through the blood of Jesus Christ, when you hold to a distinct biblical morality and a Christian worldview, you will ruffle feathers 
and you will create enemies for yourselves. That is a plain fact. As I said last week, the Bible calls us to unconditional love. We're supposed to love every human being because they're created in the image of God and therefore need to be treated with respect and dignity. But we're not called to unconditional approval. And if you're not called or believe in unconditional approval, you're out of step with culture, you're seen as dangerous, and you have found yourself an enemy. Jesus, in this verse, promises that opposition will take place. And he does not put it in small print. Paul, in 2 Timothy, puts it this way. All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Not maybe, but will be. It is unavoidable. When a person associates him or herself with Jesus Christ in the public square, persecution, opposition will come. Associating ourselves with the Jesus of the Bible comes with a price tag. So that's one reason. Jesus predicted it. Here's another reason. Satan's hatred. In John 8, 44, Satan is referred to as a murderer from the beginning. Revelation 12 calls him the accuser of the brethren. Sometimes, even Christians think of Satan as this kind of funny cartoon character with a pitchfork in his hand and horns on his head. But Satan is presented to us in the Bible as a real, powerful being who hates Jesus, who hates his word, who hates the gospel, who hates God's children, and who will push back hard against any progress that the gospel can make, and we should not underestimate him nor his power. He is a roaring lion, a fierce dragon, who fuels animosity that people have against Christians. Satan's hatred. And here's one more. The Father's plan. So let me read to you Philippians 1.29. And listen carefully the way Paul writes. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Let me read it again. It has been granted to you writing to believers, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. What this verse teaches us, and it's, it's something that it's hard sometimes for us to put our brain, wrap our brain around, is that suffering for Jesus is not only a given because Jesus predicted it and because Satan hates Christians, it is also a gift. And I get that from the word granted. It has been granted to you not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And the word granted comes from the same root as the word grace and means to give or to grant graciously. 
In other words, God gives faith and God gives foes. Yes, Satan is, a, is alive and active, but God is sovereign over all that he does. He is on a leash. God's leash. Remember, that was one of the teachings of the book of Job. That before Satan could touch one hair on the back of one of Job's camels, he had to get permission from God. Pastor Steve Estes says, sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Sometimes God allows the things that he hates, the persecution of Christians, the death of believers who only just proclaim the name of Christ is not a good thing. It is sin. And the persecutors will be held accountable for that. Justice will be done either because they repent and turn to Christ and it will be done on the cross where Christ died for them as well or they will pay in eternal damnation. But God rules supremely and sovereignly even over the wiles of Satan and allows at times the things he hates to accomplish what he loves. So he can say, it's been granted to you. Now we'll talk in a minute about what are some reasons that it's not just a gift to believe in Christ, but it can also be a gift to suffer for him. Persecution is a reality, not just in today's world, also in New Testament times. So let's look at the book of Acts and at the story of Stephen. We really need to go back to Acts chapter 2, where on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down and filled the believers and the apostles. And we see how the apostles changed from men who were just filled with fear and apprehension to men who were filled with boldness and how they preached the gospel and how thousands upon thousands were saved. Acts 6-7 says, The word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. A tremendous outpouring of God's spirit. The apostles were assisted by a man called Stephen, who is described to us as a man full of grace and power, who did great wonders and signs. So an amazing thing is happening in Jerusalem. Many people getting saved. But here's the truth. When God rises to do a work, Satan seeks to sabotage it. It's always been that way, and it always will be that way. In this case, hostility and opposition arises. And we're told in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, that Stephen had to deal with Jews who came from different places, who belonged to different kinds of synagogues. One of them is mentioned, the synagogue of the freedmen, these were descendants of Jews who were captured by Rome, taken to Rome, and then had been granted freedom 
and then established Jewish communities in Rome and now found themselves back in Jerusalem. And they, we're told in verse 9, disputed with Stephen. The whole idea is they debated him. They questioned him. Now, we're not told exactly the topic of the debate, but I think it's safe to assume that one of the things or the thing that Stephen had preached and taught was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Now, know that Stephen came out on top. Verse 10, these Jews could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen was guided by the Holy Spirit, had insight that came from the Spirit, had a boldness that was propelled by the Spirit, and they simply could not rebuff the facts that he put before them. So what did they do? Well, they ramp up their efforts. Verse 11 tells us that they found false witnesses, they stirred up the people, and verse 12 says the religious leaders got involved, and he was brought before the council, which was the Sanhedrin, a 70-member religious court where formal complaints were issued and where punishment was determined. And the formal complaint is listed for us in verses 13 and 14. So let's read it again. They said before the Sanhedrin, this man, speaking of Stephen, never ceases to speak words against his holy place, meaning the temple and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. This was a gross misrepresentation. Sounds a lot like the charges that they brought against Jesus. This is a classic case of, if you don't like the message, you shoot the messenger. It happened then and it happens now, there are so many examples of men and women who are arrested and convicted on false charges, like you are a spy for a foreign government. There is no evidence. The reason that they are arrested and imprisoned is because they are Christians. That is their crime. False accusations. So that's the situation that Stephen finds himself in. Now note what God does. And note what he does not do. What is it that God does? How does he respond to his child who is in this very difficult predicament? Verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. God places the brightness of his glory on Stephen's face. Right in front of this Sanhedrin, where there are distinguished and educated religious leaders who knew the law, who were God-fearing, but most of all, hopelessly misguided. God places his glory on Stephen's face, vindicates Stephen, and in so many words says, he is mine. 
He is my messenger. It is significant that the same thing happened to Moses, the lawgiver, the one that the Jewish leaders held in such high esteem back in Exodus 34. Stephen is not against the temple, and he's not against the law. What he simply taught was that Christ fulfilled the law, and that the customs of the temple pointed forward to the coming of the Messiah, and that Messiah had come, and his name is Jesus. God shows his approval to Stephen. But note what God does not do. He does not miraculously zap the persecutors with blindness. He does not transport Stephen to a place of safety. Because God is unable to do those things? No. Because it was not his will. And neither does he in many cases today. A 70-year-old woman in Bangladesh whose house was destroyed because she converted from, Christ, from Islam to Christianity. God did not prevent it. A 13-year-old daughter who was raped because her father is a pastor. He did not do it for a wife and mother whose husband and two children were kidnapped by ISIS. It is an undeniable reality that suffering for Jesus Christ can cost our lives. So what aim does God have with opposition, with persecution? When we look at the result of persecution in the life of Stephen, and we go to verses 54 and following, we have to acknowledge that it's both good and bad from our perspective. Verse 54 says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. So what are these things? Well, I skipped a whole chunk in the middle because of time. But what I skipped is Stephen's speech, which is a brilliant recap of Israel's history, starting with Abraham. But the Jews snap at Stephen's final words. So look with me, if you will, at verse 51. This is the end of his speech. This is how he ends it. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. 
and they ground their teeth at him. He calls them out. He speaks the truth. But it gets worse. God opens the curtains of heaven for Stephen so that he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing, and he tells them. Look at verse 56. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And the mob cannot tolerate this any longer. They scream at him. They plug their ears. They rush at Stephen and they cast him finally out of the city and they stone him to death. A gross injustice. We have to say that. Christians do not have a love relationship with pain. We should not invite suffering or persecution or opposition. And as was said this morning, it is a good thing to call on leaders to protect their citizens and to abide by the law of the land, if it is a fair and righteous law. Stephen died because he was a bold follower of Christ. That's the bad part. But remember that I said at the beginning that God is sovereign over persecution And he will bring beauty out of ashes. He's the only one that can do that. He will accomplish his purpose. So what are some of the results? Some of the good things, some of the beautiful things that we can see that God did for Stephen that he still does today. So here's the first one. Persecution promises us Christ. I'm especially interested in what it says in verses 55 and 56, that Stephen saw Jesus, the Son of God, standing at the right hand of the Father. That's significant. Let me tell you why. After Jesus' ascension, we are told in numerous places in the New Testament that he, when he went back to his father, as the great high priest, sat down at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 10, verse 11, reminds us that under the old covenant, every priest, and I'm quoting now Hebrews 10, stands daily at his service. There was no chair in the tabernacle. There was no chair in the temple. Why? Because the work of the priest was never done. Never done. But then Hebrews 10 continues. But when Christ, the great high priest, had offered for all time a single sacrifice, he sat down. The work was done. The price was paid. And now Stephen sees Jesus Christ standing at the right hand 
of the Father. Supporting, welcoming his martyred son. I think we can all agree that this was a very special, unique experience that Stephen was blessed to have. But it tells us that Christ knows and notices when his children suffer for his namesake and that he will draw near us in our suffering. We get belittled for our faith by family members or co-workers. Christ will draw near the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. For those who are undergoing serious persecution, he promises that he will be near them to support them and to strengthen them with himself. Persecution also produces holiness. Opposition, persecution, even general suffering that comes with being a finite being living in a broken world cuts out the fluff from our, eye, from our lives. It purifies us. Let's say that you discover that you have a serious life-threatening health issue. What happens is that a lot of other things in life don't matter that much anymore. They kind of fade into the background. This one thing now occupies your mind. One of the things that's so interesting when you read about persecuted Christians is that they do not get our preoccupation with our phone or our house or does this person like me or does this person dislike me and a hundred hundred other things that you and I can so easily obsess about they don't know anything about that and they don't understand that we worry about these things but they have holiness and they have peace and they have joy Richard Wormbrand the one that we just saw in the video said, I have found truly jubilant, happy, satisfied Christians only in the Bible, the underground church, or in prison. What happened when the heat is turned on, when opposition occurs, when persecution takes place, it produces the life of Jesus in us and makes us do things and say things that we would not do or say otherwise. It is Christ in us. Look at how Stephen, in verse 60, responds that as he is being stoned to death, it says in verse 60, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. This is... Jesus saying the very same thing, remember, when he hung on the cross. And so now his child, Stephen, is saying the exact same thing. Why? Suffering purifies us. Cuts out the fluff. Let's us see Christ. And gives us a power that we would not have and we would not seek if it wasn't for the pressure that we're under. It produces holiness. That's why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, talking about weakness, basically says in so many words, when I'm weak, I'm strong, so just bring it on. Make me weak, God. 
Because I want to be strong. I want to glorify you. I want to know what it means to truly follow Christ. Persecution produces holiness. And lastly, persecution also profits the church. There are quite a few examples, both in Scripture and in history, of those who were persecuting becoming believers. Why? Because they had no other explanation for the devotion they saw in those that they persecuted and their willingness to die for the sake of Christ. You can intimidate Christians. You can torture them. You can kill them. But the gospel is unstoppable. As church father Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is a seed of the church. And that is also found in this passage. Because look again in verse 58, this tiny little side note at the end of the verse. This is all about Stephen, how they cast him out of the city, how they stoned him. And then it says, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. First time Saul is mentioned in the New Testament. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. Could it be, I don't know, could it be that right now the Holy Spirit starts to work on the heart and the conscience of Saul? Because a chapter later in verse 9, there is this glorious event where God saves Saul from his sin and makes him an apostle who puts, in human terms, Christianity on the map, who would also suffer himself greatly for Jesus Christ. Only God can come up with a plan like that, and only God can see to it that it comes to fruition. Persecution profits the church. So how do we prepare for opposition and persecution that undoubtedly sooner or later is to come. Jesus said, they will hate you. The answer is, right now, right here, we need to grow in our commitment to Jesus Christ and our commitment to his church, our commitment to Jesus Christ so that we build spiritual muscle that we're in his word so that when the pressure is on, we will not buckle, but we will stand firm. To his church, because when it gets harder, we're going to need each other. Each other's support, each other's prayers. The time that there was this gray area between black and white is no longer. What can we do to help those who are being persecuted to the point, sometimes even of death. As David mentioned, their number one request is prayer. And so I plead with you, the insert in your bulletin, don't throw it in the garbage, keep it in your Bible, and pray these biblical prayers for our persecuted brothers and sisters. And do check out persecution.com and find out other ways in which we can be the family of God worldwide to the glory of God. Let us pray. Father, we come before you to thank you that you have been honest with us 
They will hate you because they hated me. None of us likes to be hated. None of us likes to be opposed. None of us likes persecution. Yet, Lord, you have promised that there is a price tag attached to following Christ. And yet, Lord, we acknowledge that in ourselves we are weak and fearful. And so we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray for boldness. We pray for love. We pray for commitment and devotion to you. And we pray that that will also be a gift that you give to those who right now are undergoing severe persecution, that they may love the persecutors, that they may have grace to stand firm in the day of trial. And Father, we pray and ask that you will glorify yourselves through all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless. You have a good Sunday and hope to see you tonight, 6 p.m.